Good morning, fellowship. Good to see you guys. There are a few more people here than in the first service. I, you know, I thought, honestly, I was kind of impressed with the first service people that they did the, the uh, one fewer hours. And then I realized we don't even hardly know anymore. Like, I forgot all about it, but my phone did the work for me. And then I thought, my next thought was, what a sneaky trick that would be. Like, we would never know if someone just went in and changed the time on us while we're sleeping on our phones. We'd all wake up an hour earlier, maybe two hours earlier. How long would it take us to actually figure out what was going on? I don't know. That's the future that technology is bringing us into. Uh, Before we dive into the text this morning, let me just say a word of welcome. Uh, At the end, I'm going to do just a couple quick announcements, but right now, let me just say, if you're new, we're so glad that you're here. Even if you're not new, we're glad that you're here. And if I don't know you, my my name is Rob, and I would love to say hello. I'll be down here right at the end, uh, at the end of the service. I'll be up front, and I'd love to put a name with a face. Just anytime, if we have an opportunity to connect, let's do that together. And then I want to ask you guys to interact with one another for just a minute. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about a crossroads moment in your life. Here's what I mean by that. A moment in time where you had a decision to make and you made a decision. You could have gone this way or that way. You made a decision that changed the course of your life for everything that came after it. Maybe it's where you chose to go to school. Maybe it's who you got married to. Maybe it was a job change or career change. Maybe it goes all the way back to childhood when, you know, I I chose to be this person's friend and we were friends forever. You know, whatever it is, think about a crossroads moment in your life, just one. And I want you to share that with one person. Maybe someone you came in here with. Maybe someone that's new to you. Introduce yourself. You're not going to have long to do this. It's going to be a minute and a half for both of you. So I'll give about 45 seconds, and then I'll tell you when to switch. And then the other person talk for 45 seconds. But just share one key crossroads decision you've made in your life. Go ahead and do that now. Okay, go ahead and switch. All right, go ahead and wrap that up. I know I'm interrupting you some in the middle of a good story, some of you. It's an interesting conversation starter, but that's not the reason I wanted to start there this morning. 
I wanted to start there because our text this morning describes one of the most dramatic crossroads decisions in all the Bible. And of course, the young woman at the crossroads is Ruth, the namesake of the book that we're studying. And we're going to hear her story this morning. Let me share you my crossroads moment. It was 2005, I was 30 years old. Jody and I were living in Atlanta, Georgia. I was working for Chick-fil-A, their support center and main office in Atlanta. And we had been talking for months, actually probably years, about me making a career change and leaving Chick-fil-A to go to seminary because I wanted to be a pastor. And I had felt that energy and that desire and sort of God's call on my life growing for years in this direction. And Jody and I had talked about it and talked about it and talked about it, but the questions were always, when do we do it? How do we do it? Is this, are we sure this is what God wants us to do? It was obviously a really big decision. We'd had our first daughter the year before. And so here we had a young child and uh, it was a big, big lot, lot to sort of think about. And so we were driving back from my parents' house late summer in 2005. My parents live in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And we were driving to Atlanta, having this conversation again for the umpteenth time. And Jody turned to me at one point and she said, you know this is what we're supposed to do. And I know this is what we're supposed to do. What are we waiting for? And that was all I needed. And that was the little push over the ledge. And I picked up my phone in that moment and I called my boss at Chick-fil-A and told him, he didn't pick up, I left him a voicemail. I said, I need to meet with you tomorrow to tell you something. Because I knew that that was crossing a line for me. I was either gonna have to make up something the next day when I saw him or I was gonna tell him I'm leaving. You know how it is. If you work for a company and you tell them you're leaving, you don't get to change your mind. You know, there's no like, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm actually staying. So I knew that was gonna cross the, that was gonna be my crossroads moment and made that decision. Now, Jody and I look back on that now years later and we thought how different our lives are. And that's the thing about these crossroads decision. You oftentimes have consequences or significant implications of these decisions that go well beyond your lifetime. For Ruth, she makes a decision at this crossroads moment that will not only transform and change her life, but the life of a clan of people, the life of a nation of people, and ultimately will affect history. Open your Bible to Ruth chapter one. We're gonna catch up the text in verse 15, but let me set the stage. A thousand years before Jesus was born, a family living in the land of Israel in the town of Bethlehem left the promised land because there was a famine there and moved to the country of Moab so they could eat. In Moab, the patriarch of the family died. The two grown sons married Moabite women and then each of the sons died. And so all that was left of this family three widows, the mother-in-law Naomi and two daughters-in-law Orpah and Ruth. Naomi has heard that God has brought food back to the promised land. And so she's decided she's going to leave to go back to her clan, to go back to her extended family. And she tells her daughters-in-law, you all need to stay here because she's thinking of their best interest and, and their future. And let's, let's look briefly, this verse won't be on the screen, but the last verse that Lloyd taught last week, verse 14. Ruth 1.14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. This is a very emotional moment for these three women. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. That means that she kissed her goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Once you see the contrast, one was kissing her goodbye, one just couldn't let go. 
Lloyd did a great job last week of unpacking the word clung. It's the, Hebrew, the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis to say it, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. It's like stick like glue. And the only way that's going to be separated is with some tearing, with some breaking. Now let's pick up our text. I'm going to read verses 15 to 18, which is our passage this morning. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. I want to talk about Naomi's advice, Ruth's decision, our response. Three parts of our message this morning. Let's start first with Naomi's advice. We see that right here in verse 15. Naomi said, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. Her gods return after your sister-in-law. This is not the first time that Ruth has, adv- or sorry, Naomi has advised Ruth to stay in Moab. In fact, it's the fifth time. I want you to see this. Uh, if you've got your Ruth journal, you can turn back a page. It should look like this, page one of the Ruth journal. And, and back in verse eight, I'm gonna zoom in here to verse eight, is the first time that Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws, go, return, Uh, two commands. They're in the imperative form. She's commanding them. Just don't stay with me. You need to go. So that's that's the first time that she has advised them, even commanded them to stay. Now look at the next times. I'm going to flip the page. Here's page eight of the Ruth Journal. I'm going to zoom in again. Verse 11, she says, turn back, my daughters. Verse 12, again, turn back. And then later in that same verse, go your way. And then finally, our text this morning, verse 15, she's saying now just to Ruth, because Orpah has left, return. Five times, Naomi is urging Ruth not to come with her. And I want to make a big deal of this because Naomi is having Ruth's best interest in mind. Of course it's better for Naomi if Ruth come. You know, Naomi was a widow, a treacherous journey all the way back. She was probably joining some caravan, by the way. You know, there, there's power in numbers in this. But even at the cost of her own um, potential well-being, Naomi is urging Ruth to stay. Why would she do that? Because she loves Ruth. And that's what I want you to understand. Ruth's family was in Moab. Ruth was still young enough to marry and bear children. Her story has a much better chance of a happy ending in Moab than it does in Judah. On the other hand, if Ruth goes with Naomi back to Judah, she is the alien. She's the foreigner. She would not be an attractive person to marry, a Moabite woman who's already been married once. One writer put it this way, Ruth knew she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. So Naomi's advice makes total sense. She wants the best possible future for Ruth. And Lloyd did a really good job last week of, he used the the analogy of um, pig pen 
from the peanuts, you know, it's like everywhere around Pigpen, there's this dust storm. And that's how Naomi was. She said, look, I'm empty. I have nothing to offer you. Even God himself has turned his hand against me. If you cling to me, if you stay with me, you're going to be empty as well. And in a very real sense, all the wisdom of the world was telling Ruth, stay in Moab. Anyone who actually cared and loved Ruth at that moment would urge her, like Naomi, stay in Moab, go back to your family, your future there is much better, which is what makes Ruth's crossroads decision so fascinating. Ruth was saying, Naomi, I'd rather be empty with you than full apart from you. Let's look more closely at Ruth's words because these are the verses that people know from the book of Ruth. Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people. We hear them spoken at weddings. You know, they're, they're sticky words. One of the reasons they're sticky words is because they're written in poetry. And so I've written it or I formatted it here on the screen so you can see the, po the, the poem uh, that it actually really is. Now, I don't love the fact that in our English translation, you, you can't tell that. It just is all jumbled together with the rest of the narrative. But in Hebrew, if you could hear this spoken, it would immediately be like, oh, roses are red, violets are blue. I, this is a poem. Hebrew poetry did not use rhyming. Hebrew poetry used something called parallelism. So you'll notice here there are actually five couplets, you know, a couplet just being two lines. And each of these couplets, so there's two lines for each, is a form of Hebrew parallelism. The most common form of Hebrew parallel, parallelism is called synonymous parallelism. Think about the word, word synonymous. It means the same. So you have a, the, the first line, and then the second line means the same thing using different words. Think of it as an echo. Do not urge me to leave you. Here's the echo. Or return from following you. It's the same thing said in different ways. Look at the next couplet. Same thing. For where you go, I will go. Another way to say that is, where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. Now, this last one is a little bit different. It's not synonymous parallelism. It's something called synthetic parallelism. That just simply means the second line completes the first. So it's, it's like a, a call and a response. So here's the beginning. May the Lord do so to me and more also. That's not a complete thought, right? It's just a pregnant pause. And then the second line's going to complete the thought. If anything but death parts me from you. So that's the poetry in this. Now I want you to see the outline. There are three main parts to Ruth's poem. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. The beginning is a plea. Ruth is giving a plea for Naomi to stop trying to change her mind. It's like, don't say anymore. Don't get me to urge, don't urge me to stay with you. I'm, or don't urge me to leave you, sorry. I'm staying with you. The second middle part is her commitment. These are the lines that we're most familiar with. We'll talk about them in more detail in a moment. And then the last one, is her oath. So she starts with a plea, don't urge me to leave you. Then she says, here's my promise to you, three parts. And then here's the oath that's going to seal the deal. Okay, so that's the way that we understand Ruth's uh, words here. The commitment is three promises. First promise is to shared presence. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. The second promise is shared 
identity. For ancient people at this time, their identity was first and foremost their people, their family, their tribe, their nation. Second of all, it was their God. We're the worshipers of Yahweh, and then the Moabites worshiped a different God, and this is how you got your identity. So presence, identity, and then the third is shared destiny. I want you to see how these three build on each other. It's like a ratchet. You know, with, with each of these commitment couplets, Ruth is ratcheting up her commitment to Naomi. Shared presence, shared identity, shared destiny. It's like even in death, you know, although we'll be separated in a sense, I'm going to be buried right next to you. Where you die, I will die. It's a shared destiny. Now, you start to see why this is such a popular wedding text. It is out of context in weddings, but I think it still works. If the, the people getting married understanding what, understand what they're actually committing to, then you see a lot of similarity to what Ruth is committing to Naomi. And I think if that's understood, it's a very appropriate text for a wedding. At a wedding, you might hear these words, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. What is that couple doing at that moment? They're making a commitment to shared presence, shared identity, shared destiny. Now, the final section of Ruth's speech, the oath, is not often used in weddings. I'd love to change that. If any of you are contemplating marriage and you want me to do your wedding ceremony, let's bring back the oath into the wedding. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, this is a weird one. What's going on with this? It's hard to understand. It seems foreign to us because it is. This is an ancient Near Eastern oath formula that was common in the day. In fact, there are 12 examples in the Old Testament of this same oath formula. May the Lord do so to me. Literally, almost the exact same words. If anything, you know, but death, they usually say, may the Lord do so to me and more also if I break this promise or if I'm not true to my covenant or, or whatever it is. Then you look outside of the Bible and you see other cultures using very similar oath language at the time that this was written. So what's going on with this? In that day, when someone made a promise that they were very serious about, they would also often invoke their deity, whatever God that they believed in, to be a witness to their promise and to hold them accountable to the promise. So that's what's going on. A couple things I want you to note about Ruth's oath. The first thing is she's already living out her commitment that Naomi's God would be her God. Because what Ruth says here is, may the Lord, that's not a generic term for God. That's the proper name of Naomi's God, the one true God, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. So she's not just saying, may some God out there somewhere do so to me and more also. She's saying, may your God, Naomi, who's also now my God, the God, Yahweh Elohim, May he do so to me and more also. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it's, it's confusing because it, she doesn't spell out what, the, what, what it's going to be done to her. May the Lord do so to me. Turns out it's never stated in any of these oath formulas. They never state the calamity 
that God or whatever deity they're, they're talking about is going to do to them. So I want, to, I want to unpack that for a minute. And this is really just for fun. So I know some of you love to nerd out on this stuff like I do. This is for you. The rest of you, give me like a minute and a half, and then you can tune back in. Okay. Why isn't the calamity ever spoken? Number one, it's probably widely understood to refer to any series of disasters that God could bring about. Death, famine, sword. So it would be as if in English we would say, you and I both know what will happen if I break this pledge I've just called out to God. Okay? Possibility number two. Ancient Near Eastern culture associated such power with the spoken word that perhaps to speak of the calamity out loud was inappropriate or uncouth. It would be as if you and I saying together, I'm not even going to say out loud what will happen if I break this promise. Possibility number three. Some think that this oath formula may have been accompanied by a recognized physical symbolic gesture. Something like this. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death separates us. We don't know. Could have been some combination of this. Here's the bottom line. This was serious. Ruth was serious. Now, back up. Look at the whole... I, want, I wanted to break it down, not so it would lose its beauty, but so that it, you would see the full meaning of what Ruth is doing. But now let's look at the whole statement, or let's look at the whole um, speech. Robert Hubbard, who is a commentator, has a good commentary on Ruth, he summarizes Ruth's commitment this way. In sum, Ruth decisively cast her lot with Naomi. Her words encompassed both the vertical and horizontal dimensions of life. In geography, they covered all future locations. In chronology, they extended from the present into eternity. In theology, they exclusively embraced Yahweh. In genealogy, they merged the young Moabitess with Naomi's family. Securely sealing all exits with an oath, Ruth soberly gambled the security of the familiar for the uncertainty of the foreign. Do you feel the weight of the commitment? Now, we know that Ruth's commitment had its desired effect because of verse 18. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth's plea worked. What more could Naomi say when you think about it? Ruth had called upon Naomi's God, who was also now Ruth's God, the one true God, to hold Ruth accountable to the commitment that she was making. What more could Naomi say? Who is Naomi to say anything to that? And so Naomi does the only thing she can do. She said no more. After five times urging Ruth, don't come with me, Naomi finally relents. For Ruth's part, she stood squarely at her crossroads moment and made a bold decision. An unwise decision, at least in the world's eyes. In so doing, she was throwing herself onto the mercy and provision of a God whom she really did not yet even know. 
and the reader is left to wonder what her new life will hold. So that's our text. Naomi's advice, Ruth's choice. Now let's talk about our response. How might God want to use this passage in our lives? On the one hand, it's a familiar text to many of us, at least you know, where, I, where you go, I go part. I think there's a song about that recently too. It's probably going in some of your heads right now. On the other hand, there's some parts about this text that just seem so foreign to us. Ancient Near Eastern oath formula. It's a Moab, uh, a Moabitess, a, you know, a young woman from Moab saying this to a mother-in-law. There's all kinds of cultural dynamics at play. What in the world would God might say to us through this text? Well, here's a question I think might help us. A question to help this text dig down beyond just a factual understanding as important as that is into the truth that will transform us. Here's the question. Whose will prevailed at Ruth's crossroads moment? I want you just to think about that for a minute. You have these two women at, at, at odds with each other. Not underneath, right? They both love each other, but, but Naomi feels strongly Ruth is about to make a huge mistake. Ruth feels strongly she is committed to Naomi no matter what. Whose will prevailed? Maybe the Westminster Shorter Catechism that we've been reading these last few weeks can help us think about this. I'll read the question. Let's all respond together in unison the response. What are God's works of providence? Let's all answer. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Whose will prevailed at Ruth's crossroads moment? Now you answer the question. Does that mean that Ruth did not make a decision? It does not mean that. But when you remember what's going on behind the scenes in this book, this text takes on a new meaning, an additional meaning. I, I'm going to suggest a deeper meaning. So everyone that studies this text sort of marvels at Ruth's commitment, and rightly so. It is a model of sacrificial love and faith we can learn a lot from it. We would do well to emulate it. But when you look behind the scenes, you remember there's more than meets the eye. And I want your brain to start exploding a little bit with this. Who was committing to who in these words? Who was pursuing who? What was going on behind the scenes? Well, when Ruth was deciding to bind herself to Naomi, she was in fact binding herself to someone far greater than Naomi. And there's no accident in that because, think about this, 
Of all the thousands of young women in Moab at the time, God chose Ruth. How was it? Why was it that when this family from Bethlehem moved to Moab and they had these two sons of marrying age who no one knew at the time only had a few years left to live, they chose wives. God chose wives. Well, what about Orpah? God chose Ruth to return to Bethlehem. Whatever was true about Ruth's unique connection to Naomi that caused her to cling to Naomi while Orpah tearfully kissed her goodbye, whatever was true about that connection, God was in that. Whatever was true about Ruth's unique personality and constitution and past experiences that all came together to cause her to make this bold and, and, and unreasonable by the world standards choice, God was in all that too. Does it mean that Ruth didn't have a choice? I don't think it means that. But there's more than meets the eye. God pursued Ruth. God committed to Ruth before Ruth committed to God. There was someone else that God was committed to. Naomi. When I was studying this passage, one of the things I couldn't get over is how different Ruth's poem is from the whole rest of the book. If you do a literary analysis on the book of Ruth, you get to this section and you're like, whoa, that's, you know, that's not like the rest. The rest of the book, I mean, think about how the, 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 the writing style of the narrator has been short, concise, terse. It, it matches the subject matter, which is hard and, and, and empty. And then Ruth speaks... And her words suddenly float above with this, this poetry. They, they tower over everything else around them. In fact, this is one of the most beautifully constructed passages in the whole Old Testament. It's why it's so remembered by us and so quoted by us. And as I studied this text, I thought, how is it that this young woman spoke this way? Or maybe we're to believe that the narrator years later, you know, when he's writing all this down, he just put these words in her mouth. He just em embellished with these questions in mind, I came across this sentence in Frederick Bush's commentary on Ruth. He said, Ruth's words and actions constitute one of the most striking examples in all the Old Testament literature of that loving and sacrificial loyalty that Hebrew language designated hesed. You guys remember this word? We've talked about it several times in this series. Hesed is the word that God gave the Hebrew people to describe himself. When Moses said, show me who you are, God passed before Moses and he spoke the words, the Lord, the Lord. I am hesed. I am love. I am steadfast, love and affection rooted in committed relationship. This is the word God chose to describe himself. And so God at his core is hesed. And then this commentator is saying, one of the most striking examples of hesed lived out is in this young Moabite woman. And I started thinking about this. How interesting. How interesting, is it possible that these powerful poetic words came as much through Ruth as from Ruth? Isn't it interesting that a young woman from Moab, of all places, was speaking the truth about who God is to an old Hebrew woman who desperately needed to be reminded? 
All scriptures God breathed. Perhaps the best way to understand Ruth's words is to hear them, at least in part, as God's voice reminding Naomi he has not left her. He will not leave her. It's not clear at this point in the story whether Naomi has ears to hear from God. We only know that Ruth's words left her speechless. What about you? If all this was true for these women 3,000 years ago, is it possible that some of it could also be true for you? If God was committed to this young woman out of nowhere from Moab before she was committed to him, is it possible that he is committed to you before you've committed to him? If God loved Naomi enough to speak his steadfast commitment to her through her daughter-in-law's words that became a Hebrew scripture, might he be doing something similar for you? And I mean even this morning. Because this is the living word of God for us today. One way to think about the person of Jesus is to understand Jesus as God's hesed, loyal, faithful love, in flesh. When love came to earth, he came for us. Listen to Ruth's words again. This time, imagine them coming from the voice of Jesus as he's preparing to make his entrance into the world in the incarnation, coming down from heaven to enter our world of pain and emptiness. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. I actually believe that God's word has the power to speak through a young woman from Moab to Naomi and be preserved so that his spirit would re-speak it to you and me this morning. And yes, billions of other people throughout time, but that does not make this to you any less significant. When thought about that way, I hope the next place your mind goes is, do I believe that God's posture toward me is loyal, faithful commitment, clinging to me like glue? That's what the Bible says. The Bible says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that, that once you've said yes to the invitation, the initiating love of God towards you, once you've said yes and you've opened up yourself just to receive that, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And so your response to God's initiating commitment 
puts you at a crossroads moment in your life. In fact, the love of God embodied in the person of Jesus brings every human being to a crossroads decision in their life. For some of you this morning, this is the first time you've faced that crossroads. You don't have to believe my words, but I want you to hear the words of the scripture. God, through the person of Jesus Christ, has come near. He has embodied his love for you to the point that Jesus was willing to die for you. And all you have to do is believe. Receive it. Turn from your own way of trying to make your life work and save yourself and put your faith in the Savior, the one who came to you and for you and died for you. And then what you will find is clinging to Jesus like Jesus wants to cling to you will result in life, just as it will ultimately for Ruth and Naomi. For others of us, you've made that decision at a past crossroads in your life, and now you're living it out. And I know how the journey goes. It's the same for me. There are times I feel all in, and there are times that I feel like I've got one foot in the commitment and one foot out the commitment. And so our invitation to life this morning is exactly that, an invitation to life. There are two questions I want to invite you to consider. How have you responded to God's initiating hesed love for you, his loyal, faithful, steadfast love? How have you responded to it? It is a fact in human history. Have you said yes to it or have you said, I'm not sure or no or let me wait or let me try it on my own first or I don't know that I can trust it? Question number two, are you willing to commit your whole self to him? That's a scary question to ask. I'm asking myself that question this morning too. But what I want you to see is why not? If God is for you, who can be against you? Why not? Why not say, Back to Jesus, who has committed his whole self to you. Why not say, oh, all right, Jesus, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, Jesus, I will lodge. Your people, the ones whom you love, Jesus, will be my people too. Your God, the Father that you're so intimate with, will be my God too. And even where you die and are buried, I will also, I will give all of it. I will take up my cross. I will follow you because I believe you're the path to life. And un as reasonable as that decision seems to the wisdom of the world, just as unreasonable as Ruth's, that's what the Spirit of God is calling us to. We are compelled by the Spirit speaking through the Word to commit to God because He has first committed to us. And so I want to pray. I want to pray for us, and as I pray, the band's going to come out, and then we're going to have a chance to respond, just to respond to that invitation. And the, the songs we've chosen are specific and intentional because we want to give us an opportunity as a body to say yes to God's initiating love. Father, would you, by your mercy and your grace, burn into our hearts the truth that this word is not only true historically, but it is true for us. That the same spirit who wrote these words through the person who was writing this story down, the spirit that was moving as this text was written is the same spirit that's re-speaking the text to us this morning. And we actually hear your voice in the scripture. 
And Father, help us to remember that faith is far more than a casual endeavor. It is an all-consuming commitment. But help us to remember that, that that commitment finds its source in you, that all we're doing is responding to your great initiation. How could we do any less? Father, would you take the, the scales off our eyes to see? Would you remove the fear from our hearts? Would you allow us with open minds, open hearts, all in, say yes to your initiating love? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.